Welcome to Educate with Dr. Jefferson, the talk show that makes the connections between research, policies, and practitioners that are too often missing from the American education system. Now, here's your host, Dr. Jonathan Jefferson. Good day, listeners. Welcome to Educate with Dr. Jefferson. I am your host, Jonathan Jefferson. You can learn more about me at my show page on TalkZone.com. Today, we are going to discuss the income achievement gap. I read an article in Educational Leadership from May of 2013 titled The American Dream Slipping Away by Susan B. Newman, and a few of the article's statements caught my attention. Economic inequality is real and growing. It can place low-income and high-income children on separate trajectories throughout school. Although the dream of upward mobility still exists, it has become far more difficult for many to accomplish. Although the have-nots gain knowledge, the haves gain it faster. Joining me today to discuss the income achievement gap are two knowledgeable and distinguished professionals. My first guest, Veronica L. Schauder, is a licensed and certified clinical social worker, school social worker, and former forensic social worker. She is also the first guest that I've had on my show as a repeat guest. Veronica, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, I greatly appreciate you coming on. Uh, Veronica, let's start with this. In general terms, what, how would you describe the income achievement gap? Basically, it refers to a persistent disparity of educational measures between performance of groups of students, especially groups defined by socioeconomic status. You're going to see this observed, uh, you know, for standardized test scores, grade point averages, dropout rates, college enrollment, completion rates. And it's interesting to note, it's not just here in the United States, the gap in achievement and income between lower income students and higher income students exists in all nations. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what are some of the experiences early in life that contribute to learning differences between the haves and have-nots? Basically, it really kind of comes down to exposure to literature, to print, to experiences. When you think of somebody with much lower income and what their struggles are on a day-to-day basis, you know, I have families that I work with that they're working two or three jobs. Those children aren't usually exposed to quality child care, really great print and literature that's been um, where their parents are sitting down with them and they're talking to them and they're having conversations with them. They're not often exposed to museums or zoos or just life experiences where there's conversations occurring. Mm-hmm. Actually include rich vocabulary, curiosity, and an extension of themselves. You know, uh, children, when they, they're invested in literature, it's because it's meaningful. So it only becomes meaningful because somebody shares their joy and their passion for it. And if you have parents who are struggling and they're working very hard or maybe you have mm, some more greater challenges that are in the home, those things go by the wayside, whereas if you're in a fairly affluent family, even if that parent isn't available, they make those resources available, uh, whether it's by somebody else coming in and tutoring, whether it's um, extended family bringing children to different places, that's how you, that gap is huge. 
And it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I, I always reflect back and reflect back onto my own experiences. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not from an affluent family, but we were also not poor. We were a working middle class family. And that my mother loved to read. And she, so the books, the, the, the walls on the house were just covered with, with bookshelves. And my father loved to read periodicals. So you had magazines and newspapers and they read all the time. And just having that, ex- that, just witnessing that uh, can motivate children to uh, be curious about reading. Absolutely. I know even for myself, and think of it this way, if you're not even exposed to all those um, all that types of literature, and you're also talking about a lot of different types of texts, also not just books, but magazines, you know, even signs. Think of it in a neighborhood, right? Maybe in an impoverished neighborhood that's a little challenging, and then in an affluent neighborhood where there's signs that are visible and, you know, you go to a grocery store and you're reading signs with your children, that requires a lot of interaction and it's communication. And if children don't get that exposure, they struggle forever to develop fluency in reading. They're draining the capacity for comprehending text. And then, you know, those who who are able to access a greater pool of knowledge have an advantage on they test. They have an advantage in learning. They have an advantage before they walk into the door. And and in fact, it can be as simple as just the language that you you, you use in your home. For example, I've always heard the saying that just because a child doesn't know that uh, the light fixture hanging in an ornate living room is called a chandelier doesn't mean that the child is not intelligent. Exactly. They just never heard the word chandelier. <laughs> and that's what, you know, that's such a huge portion because then, you know, think about that. Like if, if somebody doesn't know something, you automatically assume that maybe there's a cognitive deficit. It's not. It's a lack of exposure. <laughs> and if you haven't heard that word before, I, you know, I've, I mentioned before that I have a student that I'm working with now who is amazing and she absorbs so much. But... You have to explain everything to her. You have to explain the purpose. You have to explain what things are. And a lot of times people really discount that. Think of how busy everybody's lives are. They forget that these are, that's how you learn. You have to identify something. What is the use for it? How can that use be meaningful to you? And then where else do you see examples of it in the world? That's how you make mm-hmm. the questions. Now, now, all good parents, you know, want the best for their children. But what are some of the differences in the adult supports between the haves and the have-nots? It was interesting in um, in reading about this. You know, Newman also even refers to concerted cultivation, where there are, in certain uh, families, they're cultivating a culture of reasoning, of speaking, of negotiation, of language. You know, I know even in my own home, I'm heavy on language and vocabulary, rich vocabulary. And it, there's a lot of direct instruction. You know, people, uh, their parents are taking a direct role in guiding their children towards what books that they should be reading, uh, identifying levels, challenges. And so there's a lot of direct instruction in that parenting uh, style. Then there's um, a little bit more hands-off type of child rearing known as uh, natural growth. 
And what happens is you'll see that where some parents believe that the child kind of drives that instruction. And, you know, take something as simple, I believe in, um, in Susan's article also in libraries. You know, one of the major distinctions where when you go into, say, a more affluent middle, upper class or affluent library, you're going to see a lot of families and parents interacting with their children, with the librarians, with the access to technology, everything. If you go into a more impoverished library, which also, by the way, remember they're funded in the same way that that school is funded. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, if that school's underfunded, I would assume maybe that library would be underfunded also. So you may not even have access to the same technology or resources. But even when they go in, if you have a parent who thinks they're doing the right thing, you know, and I'm bringing maybe some meaningful teacher said, bring your child to the library. They go to the library, but then they sit and they let their child just kind of explore the library instead of giving them direction. And maybe because they don't even know how to access those resources themselves. They don't know how to use that technology or they don't, you know, that those books aren't even as meaningful to them. And so what happens is then if children are responsible for it for themselves, they're going to get frustrated easily. They're not going to challenge themselves. They're not going to, um, when they come across things that they don't understand, they're not going to go forward. Where if there's somebody guiding them, then they, it's almost like a translator to life, right? Okay, you're, you're, let me explain how this system works. And then you allow mm-hmm. your child to explore it and go further themselves. It makes now, a big difference. Yes, and in fact, you, would you say that it's, it, would, is it safe to say that some of this, it, the differences in, in library use between the haves and have-nots are cultural? And the reason I say that is because I've heard, um, and maybe I'm, I'm dating myself, maybe this doesn't happen anymore, but I've heard the saying, children should be seen, not heard, you know, when they're in the presence of adults. I mean, is, so is some of the, uh, the, the, the lack of direct adult instruction is it some of it cultural oh yeah absolutely and think of it this way you know a lot of times um if you have i have parents who have to work two jobs an older sibling becomes the direct influence on that that child and that and it doesn't necessarily have to be that older of a a um child who's managing the next child do you think they're going to look for the most enriching (laughs) avenue or are they going to take a video or are they going to take a game because it's quick, it's easy, and it's satisfying, mm-hmm. rather than really going for it. And, you know, there's also school thought that, you know, there's a lot of cultures that believe when a child goes to school, it's the school's responsibility to direct that instruction, and that that's not their role as a parent. Maybe their role as a parent is just to provide, you know, and some people are just trying to provide housing, <laughs> they mm-hmm. to provide food. And so... It's an awful lot then to say, okay, but you need that enrichment. And what if you have families who aren't, they don't communicate that way with each other? You know, um, my grandmother was from that those types of family where, you know, they were Italian immigrants and their families didn't invest in them academically, educationally, or even career-minded for the rest of their lives. They kind of were really preoccupied with making money to support themselves at that point. And most of my grandmother and grandfather's extended family had limited education, but they had work skills. And that, but they then took the, the initiative in the next level 
to support their children's education. And I think that's where you see the evolution. You know, so if you have a, a, a culture that is first time here and they, they haven't been exposed to that, and we're saying this is our culture, this is what, how we expect you to uh, provide enrichment for your child, but nobody ever said that to a parent, you know, there's a big gap right there. You know, the expectations and performance, you, you're going to see that played out all the time. Yep. And, and also, as you mentioned that, uh, we are finding more and more that the parents themselves uh, never succeeded academically or their education was in a different language in a different country and they have a very difficult time uh, assimilating and their, and their children are on an entire different wavelength. It's almost like their, their children's experience is so foreign to them that they, they feel like they can't uh, support them or they can't help them uh, or there's just a fear. And, you know, it's funny that you said that because, you know, I, as we're trying, you know, one of the biggest things is that also if you see people talk about learning disabilities, sometimes it's you know, just a true lack of exposure to mm-hmm. the text, to the world. And in those cases, how could you possibly help remediate a child without making a connection with a family and a parent? I think even for myself, one of my goals is now is to, you have to, you can't just say to a parent, okay, you got to read with your child and you have to support their homework. Okay, so now that the parent's working two jobs or they don't understand the homework, how else can they support it? What are, there are easier ways that if they can't do that, then show them what they can do, which is really having conversations. And you know, in fact, in fact Veronica, before, Veronica, before you go on with that point, um, let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll discuss more of the things that, that can be done to help uh, close this income achievement gap. Welcome back to Educate on Talk Zone. Here's Dr. Jonathan Jefferson. Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back to the show and our ongoing discussion of the topic, the income achievement gap with our guest, Veronica L. Schauder. If you'd like to join our conversation, the phone lines are open, 888-463-6748. That's 888-463-6748. We're taking your calls on TalkZone. Veronica, just before the break, uh, we were starting to get into things that uh, parents and others can do to help children um, from low-income families to close the income achievement gap. Uh, in what ways can the income uh, learning gaps be changed? Well, I mean, there's the obvious that we can better fund and create more resources for supports in, in neighborhoods that are challenged economically. But I think even on a more concrete level, you know, Training future teachers, training future uh, institutions, school institutions, library uh, library institutions, any institution that's going to touch uh, a child's life, and parents in the, the teaching of how do you create an infusion of knowledge, how do you create meaning for children through all the concepts that connect them to the real world, how do you create and inspire curiosity. All children want to learn. All children want to develop greater expertise. And I think we can't have the assumption, because somebody hasn't been exposed to to a myriad of information, that they're not capable of learning it. You know, I have a a 
child who overcame great, great, immeasurable obstacles that most adults wouldn't be able to handle. And she learned uh, English within a year. Mm. And she didn't have adults to direct her her um, success, but she chose adults to do it. And those adults responded. And I know it's always easier sometimes for adults to respond to a child who's well-behaved <laughs> and who is a little bit easier to get along, but you can't discount that all those children need all of us, and that's parents or, you know, teachers, anybody to create that curiosity and to create meaning and to inspire them to connect to the world around them. The more you're connected, the more you want to learn, and the more information is relevant. That's how you close that gap. Now, now would you... Would you say giving the haves and the have-nots? Let's 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 pretend there's a, a a railroad track, you know, dividing a community, and the haves are on one side and the have-nots are on the other, which is actually not too far from the truth in many areas. Right. Uh, and um, would giving everybody equal resources be enough to work on closing the gap, or should we uh, make it more lopsided? Should we give more supports um, to the have-nots as opposed to just making it equal? I think, you know, it was, my concern is, like, you can fund, fund, fund things, but are you are you looking at what the end result is? I think, first off, no matter what, you need to economically integrate um, opportunities, you know, within schools and institutions so people at least have, you know, somewhat of an equal opportunity to resources. So, you know, the same print, the same types of books, those things should be almost a given. But now it's also the quality of instruction, the quality of curriculum, the quality of literacy, the quality of interactions that occur, that's not as easy to um, dictate. That's something that also has to be uh, cultured in both communities and almost a sharing of that. You know, why wouldn't an affluent community want other other people to succeed? I'm sure that they do. So if you have information, it's sometimes it's even of sharing information, and it's making sure that those resources are appropriated. You know, okay. you have to, it's integration in, in all different forms with regards to human connection as well as economically. Okay, because I, I, I certainly believe that um, when you're in low-income communities, um, actually, whether it's high or low income, we're getting a, a lot more communities with uh, single parent households. Right. But in but in low income communities, oftentimes the single parent doesn't have the resources right. to have the child in an um, a, a very positive learning environment before school or after school or on the weekends if they have to work seven days a week. Um, whereas in a, it was in someone, you know, with means, even if they're a single parent, they, they have those resources. And, and that's why I believe when it comes to, you know, the same literature, I agree and the same, you know, uh, materials to help kids get to the standards, I agree. However, I think, uh, when it comes to the additional support, such as before and after school, uh, it may very well have to be, the funding may have to be lopsided, um, in support of the have-nots. Right, and also access to health and social um, interventions as well. You know, you have to support people on the basic level so that they can actually succeed. So I do agree with you. And, you know, I actually, you know, I have a parent struggling right now. I'm, I'm 
a lot of parents struggling, and single parents especially, with how how do you get safe, enriching child care that you can trust the people around you to maybe do the job that you're not doing for that moment. Like we said, where somebody who does have the money, they, they're hiring people or they're connecting with people who can enrich their children's lives if they're not available to them. Exactly. So I, absolutely. And in fact, I know of, uh, you know, we discussed earlier today off air, um, I know of a, a family situation where the, the kids are fairly successful in school. Two of them are high school graduates and in college. Um, there are two younger ones that are still in school. Um, but I learned to my surprise that because everyone in the family works multiple jobs, some of them, and often seven times, seven days a week, yeah. that the child is actually home alone, which is something that we, we work in internally to, um, correct. But that's only because I discovered that by accident, there must be many, uh, children that are six, seven, eight years old who are home alone because the families are working um, and discovering those kids and bringing in uh, after school opportunities for those kids is, is crucial just for the, from the safety standpoint alone. Oh, yeah, you take the safety first as a priority and then think though, those children who are home alone or say that they're with an elderly relative or, you know, or some kind of stranger daycare, they're not reading rich literature. <laughs> <laughs> in those moments, they're not being inspired, and they're not—they're not learning to be curious, and they're not being stimulated. And so, you take the safety issue is obviously the most important issue first, but then the enrichment of that child as a human being who is a future member of our society is equally as important because it's important to all of us. Absolutely, and and I think this is so crucial because of the fact that as we get older, others are going to need to step into the roles that we now play. And uh, the population is changing. And if we leave uh, a substantial percentage of the population behind, then those basic uh, necessities that every society has will not be able to be filled. Um, Or they will be filled with people who are are, are not up to the challenge. Right. Um, intellectually. So, um, I, it's, it's, it's too important a topic, uh, merely based on the fact that it's human capital. And, uh, for us to, to leave those kids behind will be to our own detriment, um, uh, in a not too distant future. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, I have this little girl who I think of now, and, you know, again, it's another child who had to learn a second language and had no education, probably, you know, walking in the door at eight years old. And we went to the beginning of foundations with her. And, you know, all she wants is a book. She doesn't, <laughs> you know, her family doesn't have access to just um, books. So it was great, you know, in my group, uh, the other girls thought to volunteer books that they had at home. And now, you know, on a greater level, my thinking is, okay, I know people in different neighborhoods. I would, I would love to give them the opportunity to provide this child with all the enrichments that she needs. You know, maybe because her parents aren't available to her, that doesn't mean that those resources aren't out there. I think it's all of our responsibilities to help each other. Absolutely. And in fact, I had a uh, a group of leaders on from an organization called Children International, mm-hmm. and they have they have sponsorship offices all over the world, um, in in the most um, you know depressed areas, and. The response uh, that kids have and families have to something as simple as receiving a book or 
or or a book bag or just just to be able to go into a classroom. Um, they're so appreciative of that. And something as small as that will stop them from taking the dangerous risks, for example, of, you know, trying to send their kids to the United States, you know, through these, uh, you know, dangerous channels that we've seen in the past year. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, so one of the things I did <laughs> to try to do my part is, you know, I had already sponsored a child through them, but I, I, I chose to sponsor a child specifically in one of the countries where they were seeing an influx because I said for at least that one child, he'll have some resources in his community, which will make him less likely to take the dangerous risk of, uh, of trying to trek to the United States. Absolutely. No. And you know, and then when you see this on a day-to-day basis, and I'm I'm very big on collaboration also, and I feel that there's so many more opportunities for people to cross those bounds, you know, cross the tracks, shall you say? Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> and and provide meaningful opportunities for people to help each other. Absolutely. Okay, we have been speaking with Veronica L. Schauder, licensed and certified clinical social worker, school social worker, and former forensic social worker. Veronica, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Same here. Stay tuned because my next guest will share her expertise regarding how preschools can impact the income achievement gap, along with a discussion about her book, American Children and Chronic Poverty. <laughs> 